so welcome all of you. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to see so many of you here. And um, it's a pleasure to introduce our guest, Vera Meisels. Vera is a poet, a short story writer, a sculptor, and more recently, an actress. <laughs> she is the mother of a daughter and a son, and uh, as some of you, and maybe many of you know, she was born in Czechoslovakia in 1936, and at the age of eight, she was taken to the uh, Theresienstadt ghetto or the Terezin ghetto. Um, after the war, she emigrated to Israel, and she studied sculpture at the Avni Institute. Her poems have been published in Itan 77, Ma'ariv, and Rav Kol, and she has publications uh, which include Searching for Relatives, which was published in 1970, uh, 1977 in Hebrew, Terezin's Firefly, which is a book of poetry. Many of the poems that we'll be doing tonight are from that, um, which is available in Czech and in English published in 2001, and My Threshold of Pain, uh, which is published in Slovak. In addition, she has a, quite a lot of, of material that's published online under wordpress.com. So if you type in her name, um, it will bring up uh, quite a lot of, of interesting stories and poems as well. So uh, I'm very happy to, to have Vera here. She um, has requested that we help her out because uh, she's a little self-conscious about her English still. And so um, I and my colleague, Dr. Annette Thornton and Professor Nancy Eddy, uh, we're going to read her stories and she's going to read the poetry. And she asked me to apologize if some of her pronunciation isn't quite right, but um, I think that we'll understand it even if it seems like it's, it, it doesn't seem like it's right to her. So uh, a round of applause for Vera. We will start with Nancy Eddy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good evening. The name of or the title of the story is Dancing Afraid. There's no doubt that the period I spent in the Terezin ghetto provided the basis of my future development. One might say it shaped me. I learned to be independent and irresponsible, and I was given the chance to appear on stage in the children's play Fireflies. What's more, in addition, in the children's quarter, I received an education in hygiene, respect, and manners. The tutors looked after, looked after all of us in the room where I was given a place on a three-tiered bunk. I was eight years old. It was only here in Israel that Willie, who was my tutor over there, told me how much effort he had put into persuading my mother to place my 12-year-old sister and me in his care, which is how we came to be in Children's House L410. It was my good fortune to be in a framework that attended to many aspects of my education, and I was very busy, eager to absorb with antennae that later became truly mine, this is what I want to write about now. 
I met Navashonova at one of the annual meetings held at Theresienstadt House on the first Saturday in May, which was the day we were liberated from the Nazi yoke in 1945. Nava was the director of the ghetto performances of Fireflies. I only recently learned that the play was staged also before my time in the ghetto and that I, that I replaced a girl who was sent to Auschwitz in October 1944 in one of the last transports. I arrived on the 23rd of December of that year. I have forgotten many things, but I remember my director. I approached her and told her I was one of her actresses. She was so happy. Both of us were happy. It turned out that I was one of the first of her girls that she met after the war. The intellectuals concentrated in Terezin ghetto were among Europe's finest. Thanks to the theater people and the composer, Carl Sfink, I was chosen to appear in the musical Fireflies, which was based on the book by Jan Karafiat. Nava read extracts from the book during the play. The production included dancing and singing by characters such as fireflies and a ladybird. I was the ladybird. The many rehearsals kept us busy and full of joy of creativity. We knew it was really going to happen when we were measured for our costumes. These are childhood experiences one does not forget. Everything I had missed by force of circumstances over the preceding two years, when my mind was blocked, was enabled to emerge and be fulfilled in the children's house, where a wonderful world of culture opened before me. I thirsted for attention and knowledge, and all I had to do was to absorb and process. In the past, not only was my mind blocked, but all that was expected of me before I came to the ghetto was silence. The questions I choked in my heart. In any case, they had no answers, so I didn't persist. Memories and associations have diverted me from the subject of my singing and dancing role on the stage of the Terezin ghetto. I can vividly remember my part as Ladybird. I had a red canvas back with black dots and I had transparent wings. On my head, I wore a tight black hat with antennae. I think I was barefoot. I had to dance across the stage, waving my hands up and down to the rhythm of the song that freely translated from Czechoslovakian. It went like this, in the springtime, May will come, flowers will bloom, and meadows will green again. Although the words are rather optimistic, we didn't know exactly when the war would end. The play was performed a number of times in the months before liberation. The tune is delightful, and the composer's name appeared on the original announcement, Carl Sfink. An entire chapter should be devoted to the great Carl Sfink, but it is beyond this scope of writing. My excitement during rehearsals 
and before the performance on the 20th of March, 1945, gave me butterflies in my stomach and a dream-like floating sensation. We performed in a big hall before a large audience. We on the brightly lit stage and they in the darkness. There was much enthusiasm, and I assume it was an outstanding performance according to the tremendous applause. Like professionals, we came on stage again and again to take our bow. Then the lights went up. And what did I see? The front rows were filled with German soldiers and officers in black uniforms, white skulls on the officers' caps, which some were holding, while most were already wearing theirs. Here it comes, end of the performance. They've come to take us. After all, the children aren't productive. This was the end of us. We were going to die. This is what I learned at the selection. It was all a ruse. I was trembling all over. There were no parents to lean on. It was as if they had invested in us for their own amusement. And now it was over, finished. I didn't even get a chance to say goodbye to my mother and sister. How cold it was. Maybe it was just fear. I looked around to see how they were getting organized to surround us and herd us to destruction. I already knew that a German in a black uniform meant disaster. A skull meant death. My eyes were almost bursting from their sockets when I saw the audience had risen as if in salute and was on the way out of the hall. Nava and some others came over with hugs and kisses to praise and caress and encourage us. Everything was as before. It took me a long time to calm down. For three years, until that moment, I was poisoned with the pessimism that characterizes me to this day. At the time of that horrifying experience, I had already heard it said that I was going to slaughter, standing in line at the selection. I had already heard that children, old people, and mothers with small children were destined for Auschwitz, for the gas chamber. Thus equipped, I saw the end of the performance as a trap laid for me. The pessimism, the tension of every moment's potential for disaster took root in me never to leave. But I must not forget the fireflies. Even if only by their weak light illuminated a path for me, for us, and gave us many moments of hope 
and happiness. The month of May really did come. The prophecy was fulfilled. And on the eighth day of the gate day, the gates of the ghetto were opened on freedom. Spring, spring in the lives of the very few children who survived. You, you revealed. You, you made it so. Teddy beer under a comforter. Once I was protected in my childhood serenity, bedded with endear endearments like Slatinko, my jewel, so many pet names. Some I gave to my teddy bear and my doll, who was then still able to keep her eyes open. When the stranger came to hang, uh, to hang on me a number written on cardboard, they wouldn't give me a little cardboard for my teddy bear and my doll. I didn't want to leave them, so I asked very nicely, but the stranger were furious and ripped my doll from me because I was holding it right, tight, so I was left with my doll's torn off arm. At least my teddy bear stayed whole. They were really in hurry <coughs> because they had a lot of work marking all the people with the numbers and on cardboards. On my sister, too, they hung a cardboard with a number almost the, like mine, but I can't tell you what number it was because I wasn't at school yet and couldn't read. We stood outside for a long time and I wasn't allowed to talk or ask questions. I was, uh, I was very cold and I only wanted to say that my teddy bear was lucky, that they didn't want to give him a number. I want to tell you that it's not right that I am reading the poem because uh, I am not uh, too used to, to read and uh, if somebody like you will read the poem, it will sound differently. I, I am obedient, but I think <laughs> it's not okay. He's a good little firefly. <laughs> no, you made, it, you made it fantastic. Hiding place like an animal trained to hide in a burrow silently let, lest it be discovered, so she stuffles her cries, has sentences herself to silences, humiliating adaptions 
I am a shame. I mean, try to read it. For you, it's nothing. You will see that it will be better. Try. Um, I have to put this mic on here. You should. You I give you mine too. No, I have not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me see. All right. Um, hiding place. Like an animal trained to hide in a burrow, silently, lest it be discovered, so she stifles her cries, has sentenced herself to silences, humiliating adaptations and measured steps. Like a trained animal that knows its corner, has learnt its worth, that bows its head, collapses, as if it must again find a hiding place. <laughs> I, I have one, one very short poem, which is about my father. And this one, I, I think I am. I can read, <laughs> because this has short, uh, short words. And it's written uh, original in Hebrew. I am best in Hebrew. Uh, this was translated by a very, very good translator uh, who is also a poet. And uh, it's no wonder that I can't, uh, my English is not good. My father, I imagine him again, the scar this time deeper in his forehead. His face flows purple, as thought he is the saint of a Byzantine icon. The eyes regard me in constant apology for not taking me in time to the play park. Thank you. This one I request because it spoke to me a bit. The piano. Do you play the piano? Visitors would ask. Not very often. Now and then to remember. She did not go into details. Once, however, in a moment of weakness, she let herself be tempted by a sympathetic ear. How could she not be tempted when her friends, like herself, had reached a ripe old age and could listen to her at their leisure. Over the years, since coming to the country, she had learned to hold her tongue, to disconnect from the past and let her memories sink while she applied herself to the goal that had been instilled in her, to build and be built by the land. And yet, the luxuries, the indulgences of her past nibbled at her in secret. The dust settling on that orphaned piano would no longer be granted her gentle strokes, and a soft cloth nevertheless across time 
She remembers the piano with razor sharp sharpness. When I was, I was nine when the war ended. My father was weak when he came back from Sachsenhausen concentration camp, but he did everything he could to rebuild himself and at the age of 41, decided to enjoy life. He did not count his losses, but kept an inventory of the stock of his building and agriculture supplies store, which became the most successful one in the area. My mother behaved in the opposite way, listening to the Search for Relatives program on the radio in the hope of hearing news of someone in her extended family. My father, smiling and hedonistic, my mother, stooped, tormented, incapable of caressing or embracing. Enchanted by my father, I tried to recapture my childhood and its pleasures. The tattered dress that hung on the bones of my ghetto-starved body was thrown away. The shoes with the holes cut for my big toes were also discarded. It was as if life came back to me the moment I was newly clothed. My parents chose to make a new start in my mother's hometown. Father, with his resourcefulness and newfound strength, succeeded in business. We became wealthy, had a car and a driver, a maid, delicacies, and absolute freedom. I did not know how to read or write yet. Nobody took an interest in my studies or education. My father was busy every day. My mother was sunk in the pain of loss. I found a day center for myself with Jewish twins in my class who became my friends. I felt at home in their house. Their father was the district veterinarian and their mother was utterly devoted to the girls' education and to caring for the bourgeois home. In their house, I touched an upright piano for the first time. When the girls began taking piano lessons and I asked to do likewise, my father agreed without hesitation. My friends occasionally allowed me to use their piano to practice the exercises the piano teacher gave me, but not when their father was at home. Afterwards, I invented a silent piano for myself. I drew the keys on a long piece of cardboard I had found in my father's shop and hummed the music. A year later, my father was at an exhibition in Prague where he bought a piano for me. The delivery men removed the packing and my new shiny, tall, and narrow Petrov piano stood marvelously revealed. A green strip, strip of felt covered the keys. How many caresses that felt cover received. Supreme happiness. In preparation for my immigration to Israel, I was 12 and a half already, my parents had to submit a detailed list of everything the emigrant intended to take out of Czechoslovakia. My mother was in charge of compiling the lists. I saw her bent over big sheets of paper, copying the rough drafts that she had made on previous nights in her naive handwriting. One of the items was the dowry. Six sheets, six pillowcases, one eiderdown, two blankets, 12 towels, winter and summer clothing, shoes, kitchenware, 
large wash tubs. What dowry, what kitchen, I wondered. I was moving to a kibbutz, after all. I had learned in retrospect that my parents were planning to immigrate to Israel after me. Therefore, they wanted to list everything that was allowed, including furniture. I sneaked a look at the list and saw something I did not like. A girl of 12 could only speak when she was spoken to, but here I had to make myself heard. And what about the new piano father bought me from Prague, I asked. We have no alternative but to leave it here. Only a music teacher or a virtuoso gets permission. We made inquiries, they replied. If so, I had to part from the piano too. It was such a bitter disappointment. The whole move to the kibbutz was forced on me anyway. My friends were staying here. Why did my parents want to get rid of me? I had nobody with whom to share my distress. I was ashamed to tell my friends. I even pretended to be happy. But the night, I can't forget that night. I woke up to noises coming from the sealed crate. Evidently, my father had planned all along to remove some of the seals around the boards next to the tubs and other large items to put my piano there instead. With my own eyes, I saw the large pots, tubs, and other clumsy objects that father had taken out of the crate. Then he took his wooden folding ruler and carefully measured the space, and then he pulled the piano on a wooden platform with wheels, dragging it from the house to the crate. I was in the bedroom, intently watching from behind the curtain. My heart missed a beat at the sight of my father trying to lift the piano about 30 centimeters higher. He, his back was to me, his arms hugging the piano, groaning. It was heavy, and father was very fat, not fit. No wonder he had doubled his weight since he returned from the camps, because his desire for food had come to signify life itself for him. His entire body was covered in perspiration, like a sumo wrestler. A sweat-soaked towel hung around his neck. I saw him strain upwards while gripping the piano to move it into the alcove he had prepared for it, but he could not raise it high enough. I could not see his face, but the weakness of his arm movements expressed despair. After a brief rest, he tried once more to push the piano into the narrow hiding place, this time with the aid of a plank and from a different angle, bang, strange sounds, Dling, dlong, boom. The piano fell with father spread-eagled on top of it. There was nobody to help him. My mother, who was awakened by the noise, was too frail and stood aside watching in silence. Father was afraid of informers, so he could not call one of his Slovakian workers to help. When he revived a little, he again dragged the broken piano, this time to the wall of the yard. He asked mother to bring a blanket in which to wrap it. Then he spread sacks on the covered piano and arranged a variety of goods on top of them for camouflage. Following this, 
he went inside and had a glass of Slivovitz to calm his nerves. After several glasses, he called me to him and with tears in his eyes promised, you'll have a piano yet. When she finished telling about the piano, her mouth was completely dry. She cleared her throat to get rid of the phlegm. No doubt the result of cigarettes. Her well-wishers urged her to stop, but she knowingly inhaled the self-destruction. Her father also used to smoke Dubček 10, the flat Turkish tobacco cigarettes. A sudden pressure interrupted her breathing. She asked herself if it was the same heart trouble angina pectoris that her father had. She could not make out what was stabbing her there between her breasts. She remembered the telephone call summoning her home. Later, she learned that it was to attend her father's funeral. How had he, her healthy father, dared to die without even giving her any prior notice? It was only after his death, 30 years ago, that they found the Valerian tablets in his drawer. Proud man, he never uttered a complaint. Even when he came to Israel and was sent to work with builders as an iron bender, he joked that he actually liked the back-breaking labor. Nobody suspected that a man as hardy as he, who used to bathe in snow in the diaspora, would die here in Israel in the spring. He did not even make it to his 60th birthday. Over the years, the times when she would play now and then to remember became rare. Her fingers no longer obeyed her, but still, Having the piano nearby bathed her in a warmth of her childhood home. It was as if the comforting voice of her father issued from the piano sound box, promising that in spite of everything, she would have her own piano yet. Maybe, she mused, it was worth going to the material shop in the Nahalat Binyamin Street to buy a length of green felt to protect the keys. In that way, she could at least stroke the soft felt in the echoing silence of her flat. I will read uh, from Father Legacy. Mm -hmm. Because it, from my Father Legacy, from my Father Legacy, from my Father Legacy, I have a Czech crystal ashtray. He bore his life in mortifying smoke, burying deep, blocked sides, miserly in sharing his suffering. The ashtray in front of me fills with the stops of my life.
think. No, my, my mother tongue. My mother tongue is unknown to you. My father's isn't spoken here. My birth tongue is not longer with me. I dream in tongues, my roots are torn. Frozen memories. Even the beer in the can has frozen. Like memories captured in still photographs. A child consoles herself with a teddy bear spaw or makes do with the arm of an amputated doll. Even after decades frozen, I stare at the can overturned in the glass, dripping the bitterness like an infusion that penetrates with time. This story is called A Granny. How I'd waited for the moment. The renovations to my new home were complete, and I could hang the pictures at last. I knew exactly where to place each one. I reserved the place of honor for the relatively large oil painting. The portrait of Granny had to hang next to the wide front window. It needed light. It was good that she could view the room from above the scratched black rocking chair that stood somehow rebuked in the corner. Maybe the ancient chair was as old as Granny. In any case, it certainly came from the same part of Europe, the same atmosphere as she did. I like sitting in that corner, gently rocking, absorbed in memories. Sometimes I like to sit there in the dark, especially when a ray of light seems to dart straight into the left side of the portrait, illuminating Granny's expressive face. In order to hang the picture, I tried hammering in a steel nail, which damaged the wall and left a blemish. The plaster fell, taking the nail with it. I tried again and again, hammering with the utmost care. No good. The white plaster peeled away to reveal dark cement. It took five attempts before I succeeded. I chose a higher point, and the reluctant nail found a crack between the bricks and was pushed in. The holes in the wall looked like the result of a volley of shots at a target, or from the firing squad above the pit at Babi Yar. Yes, I know. It's certainly my sick imagination taunting me. It's hard for me to cure myself of black visions and the search for meanings in every action. Fortunately, the painting was big enough to cover the damage. The portrait showed her old and bent, 
crocheting something or other. It creates the ambiance of an authentic presence. It arouses nostalgia in me. At times, the yeast smell of dough for everyday bread or the Sabbath loaf rises to my nostrils. The date, 1896, is penciled on the back of the painting, indicating that I have a 19th century treasure. It seems that the painter was influenced by Rembrandt's painting, paintings in which light plays a major part. In my painting, too, only her wrinkled, furrowed profile and a small area of her hand are illuminated. Her protruding knuckle merely suggests that she is holding a crochet needle. Her dress is almost black, merging with the dark brown black, uh, background. It looks as if she is smiling, but because of the inclination of her head, this is hard to ascertain. When my children were small, they called her Granny. I never found the opportunity to go into detail about which side of the family she belonged to. Unlike most schools at, at the time, the one my children attended did not have a family tree project. The children were not expected to delve into the place of the granny in the parent's family history. She existed as a fact. Now and then, guests asked, who's the old woman in the painting? At which the children immediately answered proudly, she's our granny. Our friends would then remark, on the strong resemblance. Sometimes we have the portrait, some suggested we have the portrait evaluated by Sotheby's. However, I have no interest in what the painting is worth. I love my granny that I acquired under rather strange circumstances on a Friday when I was urgently summoned to the office of the bank's board of trustees to translate a will written in Hebrew for a client. My eyes fell on the painting of an old lady in the waiting room, and it was love at first sight. I remarked that I didn't see the connection between the painting and the bank's office. Inheritance, they explained, an item they didn't manage to sell at the auction. What, are you interested in this painting? said the man from the bank. As a bank employee, you can even have it at a discount. I didn't answer. I concentrated on the main issue, which was the client and his will, which lay on the desk. According to him, he trusted only my translation to German. I translated, he signed, and two witnesses confirmed the signature. Now I can surrender my soul to the creator said he, and the lawyers wished him health and a long life. I also breathed a sigh of relief, and as we left, I asked what price was being asked for the painting. I was told that since it was unsigned, the price was 180 US dollars. I was surprised that it was so low, but I didn't want to challenge fate by being greedy. I said, 
I would like to think it, I would like to think about it over the weekend and promise to phone and let them know. I was worried about the granny all weekend. I suspected the legitimacy of the sale and the low price, but the denizens of the executive suite reassured me and helped me to reach a decision. Early, in the, early the next morning, I phoned them. I want the painting, I announced, and it was mine by lunchtime. But it wasn't just an oil painting, not a mere possession. The painting became a part, however artificial, of the puzzle of my life that lacked so many pieces. I told myself, at last I have a granny. True, the painting is unsigned and the painter is unknown. My grannies also went to an unknown place. Often as I page through books on the Slovakian Jewish congregation, I fall under the hallucinatory impression that here for sure I recognize my maternal or paternal grandparents. I recognize them for a moment and then come to my senses. Whereas the granny in the oil painting has become accustomed to me and has adopted me. You made it so nice. Oh, you made the story. Is this generation start? Yes. You, you have. No, wait a minute. You know, the, you know the poem. Okay. You help me. Okay. Is this next? <coughs> Return to Theresienstadt. It's not clear. It's all getting blurred. I'm assailed by searches and proofs. They tell me, go, it'll close a circle, while for me it's all parallel lines, like railroad tracks into the distance, remembering myself in the boxcar, clattering over them. A scrap of barred sky overhead, looking for a lost doll. The moon racing eye to eye with me in the aperture, as if it was crossed out by a barbed wire X. And now, I arrive at the ghetto again. Standing opposite the Kinderheim, I see a house with arched ceilings, walls, surviving layers of whitewash, and trying to find a scratch, a bit of my name. It's all been repainted, perhaps to obscure it. I search for a familiar little corner, and here's the high knob of the heavy gate I could never reach to prove it was locked. I touch and caress it in my gnarled hand, and the knob seems to shrivel in my fist.
It's a nice feeling that you liked it. When I met uh, Lorraine uh, in December 1944, I couldn't believe that such thing can happen, even really in my wildest dream, that somebody will come to meet me and, and to ask me question about the fireflies, to ask me sing the the spring is coming, and uh, she, uh, we met some hours, and when she was gone, I, I, all my, uh, all the day, I was occupied uh, with the, uh, with Lorraine, about Lorraine, 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 all the time Lorraine. I knew, because I knew myself, uh, the poems are my therapy. I save uh, much of money to go to the psychiatrist. So when I am suppressed, I, I, <laughs> I cannot express myself in English. And then the poem comes out. So I wrote this poem for Lorraine. And I sent uh, it by mail. and. Uh, if she wants, she will tell. And she, she convinced me that I must read it. I cannot give it to somebody. <laughs> she came to me all the way from Michigan. I knew nothing about her at all. But her efforts to trace me won me at once. I didn't know what Teresin Ghetto meant to her. I didn't know why she searched for that firefly on the ghetto stage in the distant past. I didn't understand why she delved into the Holocaust. Meeting her, I understood her greatness. I understood what drove this rare woman to revive and almost forgotten and almost forgotten children play. She laboured over every scrap of paper, drawing in interview, painstakingly collected and stored them for her doctorate. She crossed seas and countries in searching of the fireflies to enlighten us and generations to come. She spent the 70 years since that premiere in which the children whose days were numbered appeared. Thank you. Thank you. That's it. That is our evening. Thank you all for coming. I'm sure you're welcome to come up and talk to Vera. Yeah. Thank you.